Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 5, Saints of Imperfection, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and I thought maybe I'd just do a whole podcast all by myself, where I just like sit outside the door to a spaceship waiting for someone to come along, and it just never happens, and I end up having to do it all by myself. But fortunately, I'm not getting... I'm not going to spend the entire podcast getting Spock teased. I'm going to be bringing in my faithful number one, Mr. Mike Bloom. I'm happy to be here. Just just came from the snake pits and boy, is my tongue tired. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're ever getting Spock at this point. I still think give him give him like two or three episodes. I feel like we're getting Spock. Maybe it's because I saw Spock in the preview. Uh, but this is probably the biggest case of Spock block that we've seen so far. We we finally, you know, after spending an episode fruitlessly chasing after him in the peripherals of the radar, finally get him, beam him aboard. That is not Spock. Spock is not here. Where is Spock? I think they've lost any trace of him at this point. But I don't know. Something tells me they're going to they're going to eventually find their way back on the trail. But it looks like for now, the Spock, uh, the Spock lead has run cold. I suspect at this point, maybe we've seen all of the Spock we're going to see this season because they had to show us every second of Spock in the previews to get us hyped up for Spock. So you think this is a sneak peek of season three of Star Trek Discovery? Pretty much. Like everything is either season three or it's like the very last episode of season two. Or it could be a new Spock spinoff. Yeah, it could be. I, I want that show to just be called Spock! Exclamation point. I feel like it could happen. Again, we don't know the name of the Picard show. I feel like uh, whichever one, I mean, Spock has the bigger name, but whoever decides to take the Oklahoma-esque naming system is going to have to uh, own a monopoly on that. And you have to find another naming convention for the other one. That's true. I guess Picard exclamation point makes a little more sense than Spock exclamation point. But, you know. Well, I mean, we we can't talk uh, too much about hate on this podcast, Jess, because this was a love-filled episode, including the fact that it ended up conveniently airing on Valentine's Day. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely the perfect thematic episode to be airing on February 14th because it's about the enduring power of true love and about your ability to connect with other beings, I think, more globally. And... I guess in that respect, it felt like we kind of slowed down the action. I know we can't always go at the breakneck pace of episode four, but oh man, this felt like we only really had two big plots to contend with. Yeah, and I, for one, again, I talked about this last week on episode four, as much as I do like sort of us running through all these plots, getting a lot of information at once and really, you know, running from plot point to plot point, I'm always happy to take a breath. And slow things down. And this was, you know, it was something that was a bit world building and that we got to literally see a world that was built. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, big character centerpiece around a relationship that you could argue has and has not been explored in Star Trek Discovery. uh, And also a big exploration in a piece of mythos that I would love to talk about with you, you know, as a huge uh, Star Trek fan across the franchise. So there was a lot of stuff in here, but it felt... A little bit more, a little less constraining. I think we're a little bit less of like a, I don't know, a stranglehold that the previous episode had. Like, we need to go, 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 hop between all these different places. 
Here, it really felt like they were taking their time in here, but it's still a lot of stuff happened. It didn't feel like a, a languid episode of Disco. Yeah, I would almost say that we, instead of exploring three breakneck life or death plots here, we explored three relationships. Mm. I would say one of the relationships we had that obviously we have to talk about Stavitz and Colbert getting back together and Colbert coming back from the dead is kind of our headline story this week. But I think we also have the reunification of Burnham and Tyler and having to be in each other's faces going forward. That's going to be interesting. But then I thought maybe the most interesting moment of the entire episode was near the end where Tilly admits that she has this deep connection with May or with the entity that's calling itself May at this point, that she, this is a connection that she hasn't felt with anything before and that she feels like she knows it better than she knows herself. And I thought that was a really interesting way to characterize that relationship. Yeah. Do you think Tilly's suffering from Stockholm syndrome a bit? Considering how much this thing has been bothering her, it's interesting, like you said, very weird arc that this starts with this, you know, this thing inhabiting her or inhabiting at least her consciousness to project this image of May, uh, which, why do they keep picking May? You know, when, when she comes out in Stranger Things season two land, uh, May's like, I did, I projected myself so I could be of comfort to you. A, you were not of comfort beforehand when you were appearing as May on the ship. Tilly wanted you out ASAP and you were, a little a little annoying back then b could you not pick anyone else from tilly's life outside of her rando friend that she made for six months in middle school is there nobody else in sylvia tilly's life not even appearing as like michael burnham that might that, that would probably be more of a calming presence than this girl who like signed your yearbook you know 20 something years ago are we meant to draw from this that this is the closest friendship tilly has ever had i guess so i mean it seems a little ludicrous to me but again i guess i have to think about the fact that this character at least starting out was extremely socially awkward maybe my just blank assumption was that in all the time she moved around she would have made more friends but maybe there is something about the fact that this relationship with may sort of like a spore is stuck in her memory somewhere that it's just weird that tilly really wrote it off at first, when she's like, oh, it's just this random girl from middle school. She did mention a couple times that, you know, oh, she was she showed me some interesting things in the short time that we spent together. But it did not seem she had a seismic impact on her life, though, obviously through conflating her identity with that of the Giuseppe leader, or at least uh, the most vocal Giuseppe. Uh, it's clear that <laughs> Maya Hearn is going to uh, mean much more in her life now more than ever. Yeah, I think we can't even really characterize May as being like, one citizen of the mycelial network. I think it's got to be more that this network is kind of its own single entity. And like May is the piece of it that decides to interact with Tilly. I think it doesn't feel to me like these are just like discrete citizens. Yeah, I mean, they sort of what makes me feel like it might be is because they keep using this term ecosystem and, you know, when you see the little spores wandering around in the weird Dr. Seuss land that is the mycelial network, it does make it feel like here are animals roaming free amongst the Serengeti. The to your point, it could be that the network and the spores are just so closely intertwined that one's identity really does inform the other. Yeah, I'm thinking of like 
this radio lab episode I listened to a couple of years back that talked about how trees are all kind of one single entity within a forest because they all communicate to each other about what's going on um, as far as like moisture and nutrition and whatnot. And you can track like a piece of information that goes to one tree and then like another tree miles away picks up on it because their roots are all connected. Mm. And I feel like that that might be something in terms of like the, I mean, the, the fungal nature of this, these spores do fulfill something, you know, that does exist with fungus in real life and that it's able to it's nature's recyclers. I think as Stamets puts it a few episodes ago, they're able to break things down and rebuild it in a different way. And instead of, you know, breaking down garbage and turning it into compost, instead spores are able to break down your body parts and turn them into, I don't know, trees or other things. Yeah. Or weird bark or pods like, or black slime. I don't really know at this point. Uh, this is a strange and wonderful universe, is this um, collection of spores. Did you think we would ever be going in the mycelial network, let alone, you know, so quickly into season two? Well, I didn't think of it as a place, I guess. Mm. Um, I And I guess I'm not really thinking fourth dimensionally here, but <laughs> <laughs> it does feel to me like they... It was. It felt like a physical place they were going, and that seemed kind of at odds with how I understood the mycelial network to work. Yeah, I mean, I think the only time we saw of it was when they did, like, the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure-esque <laughs> disco piloting through the weird, like, network of tunnels when Stamets brought them back from the Mirror Universe. And I think, to your point, you could very well look at that and say, okay, that's the Mirror Universe. I or not the mere the uh the mycelial mycelial network i guess not or maybe this is like a a truck stop on the overall mycelial mycelial network highway i'm not entirely sure because i do agree with you it's odd that it's an actual location though i guess i do understand that for the purposes of this storyline you do want to physicalize it so then when disco inevitably ends up in there you know, you want somewhere for Tilly and May to start so that they can eventually make their way into the weird lilacified disco. Yeah, it, it's almost like they they kind of slid into another parallel universe. But then that doesn't make sense either because we've seen what the parallel universe is and how that functions and where they go. So it was like this is like the restaurant at the end of the universe or something. Yeah, it was, it was like uh, it's like the Poseidon Adventure or Titanic, where it's like, oh, part of the boat is flooding. That's what uh, that's what yeah. it sort of felt like, especially since they Discovery just sort of like dips its toes into the water, right? That's Stamets' plan is to like basically go, uh, you know, non-orthogonal into yeah. the the mirror universe, so that it's uh, part of it's immersed in there, and so they sort of have a nice drop off and pickup point. Uh, and I guess again, that's sort of where the colorizing comes in, so you can tell exactly what's our universe and what's not uh so that you know when these uh bridge the people on the bridge are doing all these badass maneuvers to try to avoid getting sucked into the mycelial network to get eaten alive uh there's a reason why they're doing it they're not just doing it for no reason yeah they're in oz and that part of the ship is in kansas <laughs> exactly yeah that's uh i mean it's it's one color rather than a bunch of different colors but yeah uh, and they're and they're learning to find their way home so you know what i think this this comparison makes more and more sense the more we talk about it okay now i get it i just have to think of it in terms of oz i guess yeah exactly and it's sort of like uh you know hugh thought he couldn't go through you know the hot air balloon took off presumably speaking but it turns out that he had the way to go home the entire time through the cocoon those were the red slippers 
I guess the you know the slippers got a lot grosser over time. Yeah, and, that, and that's the interesting thing as well. Is again, like the network itself seems so naturalistic and again beautiful and almost wild. But that cocoon. I mean, the word cocoon to me, I immediately connotate to like insects, you know, to to bugs or to like xenomorphs, alien esque uh, alien <laughs> creatures. And the Giuseppe just seemed totally not like that. So it's odd that they choose of all things like this really grimy cocoon to house people and to bring them over. Yeah, you would think it would be like a telephone booth or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they might not know what a telephone booth is, but yeah, or at least something a little bit more of a welcome party. Poor Tilly. I mean, we talked about this, how this season is just like, how many times can we torture poor Sylvia Tilly? And this might have hit her limit here, considering that she like wakes up horror stricken in this network of these weird, you know, uh, creeping vine like things around her only to get dragged out and be like, hey, surprise, I kidnapped you and brought you into another universe because you definitely have to save us now. Yeah, Sylvia Tilly is the Miles O'Brien of of this Star Trek series. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I would also not say this is a wrap on May. You know, it's really interesting. This episode has a theme of promises uh, to fact where, you know, Pike even gives this big speech of like Starfleet is a promise. You help me and I help you. There are so many characters that make promises to each other in this episode, Jess, including uh, Tilly teaching May how to do a pinky swear and basically saying like, I'll see you at some point. And I feel like even though they talk about, quote unquote, closing the door, the fact that Stamets still has these particles inside of him means like means that I, I don't know if it's a wrap for the spore drive slash mycelial network just yet. Well, how many times have they already said they're done with that? <laughs> and then they keep getting pulled back into it one way or another. And I have to think that. There's a point where they're going to close the door on it for good because we certainly don't see people in subsequent Star Trek series getting to use that kind of awesome technology. It certainly would have saved Star Trek Voyager a lot of time, but mm. it really does feel like they keep saying, oh, we can't use this anymore. It's terrible. It's doing, it's harmful for the network. It's harmful for us. We have to stop. It's harmful for Stamets. We have to stop. It's harmful for the tardigrade. We have to stop. And they keep not stopping. They're, they're addicted. Addiction is a tough thing to kick. I mean, if I'm going to make a long-term prediction for if and when Discovery decides to end, I think, uh, I think Stamets own promise that he offered up when he first thought that Hugh wouldn't be able to make it through I think at one point Stamets is going to offer himself to go into the network and close it up permanently that that's what I personally think and whether it's going to be sacrificial or whether it's him saying like I'm more spore than man I must go back and you know connect with this or if he becomes the Giuseppe's new savior I'm not entirely sure but that's what I personally think because that does a nice job of like Closing up that plot hole of we won't use the spore drive anymore because the one person who can navigate it is now inside the spore network. He essentially locked himself in his house so we can't get into it. Well, I don't want to completely spoil other Star Trek series for people that might not have watched them, but I'm pretty sure that's how at least one other Star Trek series ends. Mm, I'm trying to think about it now without being too vague. It's the one that I always talk about, so. Okay. Yep. Now that. Yep. Okay. Now. Now it's lining up. <laughs> but, uh, that, that tracks. Uh, well, here's my question. Uh, so, 
Are we going to like maybe fan wank this a little bit to say that we were damaging the spore network because we introduced this monstrous presence and now we've removed the monster. So is everything in the mycelial network healthy again? Or will we continue to damage it if discovery continues to go to black alert? That's a good question. You know, it's sort of like, uh, is it akin to planting a tree or is it akin to just leaving the coral reef be so that it doesn't die off anymore? You know, I do wonder how much the flora is going to be able to rebuild itself. Uh, I mean, these spores seem very capable of breaking matter down. But to your point, if they do any more jumps... I don't know if Stamets got some cat hair on him. Is that going to affect things? Because apparently now he could be a big old vessel for introducing just random matter into this universe. So it's going to be like when Hermione took the polyjuice potion that had the cat hair in it. Oh my god, imagine if they found Cat Hugh in this universe. I mean, that, <laughs> the internet loves Hugh Colbert as it is, but that might bolster his popularity even more. Oh man, I, I, Cat Hugh is the new fan fiction I want to see. I mean, imagine going to Wilson Cruz being like, good news, your character's coming back. Bad news, you may need to wear a cat prosthetic for your reunion episode. Jeez. Oh, oh, that is, you know, that is the classic, like, good news, bad news. Um, although I'm here for it, and I am still waiting and waiting and waiting for live-action Star Trek to introduce Cations. Mm. Well, I guess we shouldn't bury the lead here uh, as well. I mean, Colber is back. I I forget, uh, Jess, from your coverage with Rob of season one, were you a a Colbert's stan? How did you feel about them before uh, Colbert was so unceremoniously killed off by Tyler and Voke? Well, first of all, I think the fandom prefers Stamber, but... I I loved them. They're such a great couple. The two of them together, like a lot of chemistry. Um, I really felt the love story. I thought that it was really great that we're finally getting a real same-sex couple in the Star Trek universe and not just like one-off episode, but actual canon and actual characters in multi-episode arc with two great actors. And I was very sad especially with the kind of sudden brutality of how Colber left this world. It was really kind of upsetting. I don't think I saw it coming. But I will say, here's my note for the production team on Star Trek Discovery. If you are going to bring back a character that we all watched die, and you want it to be a big surprise... Maybe don't put the actor's name in the opening credits for the first four episodes leading up to his big reveal. And you know Mm. they can play around with credits because of what they did with the actor playing Ash Tyler Mm -hmm. being credited with a different name when he was Volk the Klingon. So we know they can do that. So every time I saw Wilson Cruz in the opening credits and I didn't see Wilson Cruz in the episode, I was like, oh, is he in the main cast now? That's weird because he's dead. And I don't think there's enough there there for him him to be a ghost in every episode that's not the show i'm here for and yet now he's just back and he's fully alive and we found a really weird way to bring him back but yet here he is he's back and i feel like it's a little bit less shocking and awesome than it would be if i hadn't been paying attention to the opening credits Right. This really is the smoking phaser is these credits. And my heart goes out for Wilson Cruz because I was lucky enough to attend, you know, a good amount of these preseason, uh, you know, 
promotional things that he was doing and he was on it because he was a main cast member upgraded for season two but he could literally say nothing like all the questions people were asking were aren't you dead and he's like well you'll see and i i feel for him i had the opportunity to talk with him this week and anthony rapp for thr and you could just feel it was a weight off his shoulders that he could finally get the chance to just talk about him being on star trek with without having to just remain mum about everything uh, I mean, I did think, and maybe this is uh, not less the Star Trek part of me and more about like the other peak TV parts of my brain were thinking, okay, maybe where if they did like a uh, a Jack from This Is Us where like they do a bunch of flashbacks yeah. and like he's involved there. I could see that or like, what if, uh, you know, sort of like what happens with May, maybe a spore gets into Stamets and the vision of Hugh appears to to talk with him. I feel like there were possibilities that you could bring Culver back without actually bringing him back to life. That being said, I do agree with you that I was happy to see him come back. We can talk about, you know, the method of it, but I was sad to see him get killed off. It, it unfortunately rang a bit of, uh, you know, the, the barrier gaze trope. And I also really liked the two of them as a couple. They were obviously groundbreaking and they were really into each other. And one of the great things about a serialization like you see with Discovery is that you really get time to like, look at these relationships in the sense of a plot line. You know, you're not going to like, oh, what's the mission of the week and how is this going to affect Culber and Stamets? Because there was one long plot line, you got to see them really flesh out their relationship. And when he got killed off, it made me want to see more. And we got to see more a bit, you know, with that memory that Stamets invoked. We hear in the in the network, Stamets invokes another memory of like the first time that he fell in love with him, basically. But uh, and it, it also doesn't mean that I think it's a complete retcon. It seems like there are going to be some ramifications to that. At least that's what Wilson Cruz told me, that there's going to be consequences to it. Uh, so it's not exactly one little neat and tidy package, but I was overall happy to see him back, even if the circumstances were a little loopy. Well, I mean, it's Star Trek. Loopy circumstances are kind of how they ply their trade. Mm, yeah, that's very that's very true. There are a hundred ways you can bring someone back from the dead in Star Trek. Like, you can go to the mirror universe. Um, you can clone them. You can have a robot clone of them. You can have a shapeshifter of them. You can... You can launch them onto a planet that happens to be building a bunch of life conveniently right at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can spend a whole two-hour movie searching for them. And guess what? That only took two hours. And here we've been looking <laughs> for six weeks. Get on it. Um, yeah, there are so many ways. And this was even for Star Trek, it was kind of a weird way to get him back. But I think no one is ever really dead in Star Trek. And I think that's also just like, uh, it's almost like a, a mysticism to it as well. I know that Stamets is definitively the man of science when it comes to this ship as opposed to the man of faith. But I mean, he said in the season premiere, you know, Hugh is everywhere in this ship. And I know he was meeting it metaphorically, but there is something fitting to me about the fact that Hugh was trapped in this mycelial network because that is such a big element of Stamets' life and something that he is inherently connected to at all times. Really, we saw that, you know, the most in season one where he was getting the cloudy eyes and jumping between worlds, uh, you know, just at random. But the fact that, you know, he happens to be trapped in this network that Stamets is so connected to really means that truly Hugh never left him in a manner of speaking. Well, I think 
I think Stamets kind of talks about it, like the energy never fully going away, and like he's able to tie it back down to his man of scienceness while still getting very mystical. And I think in an episode where I thought the writing was very up and down, that was kind of one of the up moments for me. Yeah, Stamets essentially bringing a law of conservation of mass to transubstantiation, essentially. Basically, yeah. Yeah, that it's was very fun. I, I thought it, I thought it was an interesting way for him to, and it was a nice way to sort of for him to bring that up at the beginning. Uh, you know, for him to explain why he thought Tilly was in the network was because you know her atoms are not in the cocoon anymore. They had to go somewhere. Uh, you know, in a manner of speaking, he had his own faith. You have these. Another bookend, these slow montages of Michael walking on the bridge. The first one's very sullen. You can almost hear, um, uh, uh, oh, what's that song from Donnie Darko? Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Mad, Mad World. World. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Playing in the background as she walks there, all emo that her roommate's gone. But Stamets is the only one who has, uh, you know, this drive that, no, he's got to be, he- she's got to be here somewhere. Couple that with the very end when she's walking confidently, uh, and then she looks to Ash Tyler, and it's a little awkward, and then she looks forward. Uh, so there's some really interesting bookends that are going on over the course of this episode. It's a really interestingly packaged, uh, you know, 50-something minutes, and this is one version of it that essentially, uh, you know, Chekhov's physics, one law that was dropped in the very beginning, ends up being the thing that is resurrecting Q, essentially. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought that was a really elegant little bit um, to bring him back in via that cocoon that took Sylvia out. Um, I don't know how much I love the idea that we're going to put the ship into this like liminal mycelial network space and let these spores snack on it for a full hour. Like, can you imagine engineering at the end of that? I mean, I feel bad for all these other people just being like, all right, you know, new security officer Nan is just <laughs> yelling at people to go to the other side of the ship. They're, they're like, oh, uh, OK, I, I suppose so. Uh, as you know, everyone I mean, as Pike said, everyone basically put their life on the line for Tilly. Uh, and I guess they decided to hang out a bit more when they heard that Colbert was there, even though I think Pike is sort of like, uh, who? But OK, I guess I'll guess I'll hang out for a second. Though they are. You know, I do wonder, had they not gotten the support from Section 31, if Pike may have instituted, like, an early bail by saying, like, you need to get out of there now or else uh, Disco is not going to even make into the next Starbase to get repaired, whatever these spores are eating at. Yeah, it seemed like they also know, harkening back to Season 1 and what happened to the Glen, they also know what happens if something goes wrong while you're hanging out in the mycelial network. Some really gross stuff could happen to you, and they're going to risk that to go after one crew member and then two crew members. It was kind of a dicey plan. I feel like they could have used a little more thought. And then at the end, to watch Stamets kind of monologuing, and it's like, no, you're still there. Spores are eating your ship. Maybe you should probably make this a little bit shorter. Like, wrap it up, buddy. We got to go. Yeah, the one thing I was not a huge fan of was the little fake out when, you know, Hugh tries to put his arm through and, oh, no, it turns into spores because he's basically spores at this point. And then, oh, no, they think up this plan. You know, maybe it's because, again, when we had the no death, the fake death in episode three, then we had the fake death in episode four. And now we have the like 
oh, he he might have to stay. Oh, wait, he's going to go in episode five. It feels like we just keep getting brought to this edge and then pulled back at the last minute where your your heart stops palpitating after, you know, a few times that it gets done to you. Yeah, you really can only pull that trick out once, I feel like. And we already have had that scene where, you know, Culber's not real. He can't come back to the real world of the living with him. And getting that scene another time really takes a lot of the love out of it. Mm. But I, Culber is back, you know, in the flesh quite literally. But mm. I mean, it seems like it's a different flesh. I know that Anthony Rapp told me that, I mean, one of the things they're going to have to deal with is that Hugh is, while, you know, he's still back in a body. It's a different body. It's essentially a, a copy, like you sort of alluded to before. It was the spores sort of rebuilding the atoms that happened to be in that cocoon into a Hugh Colber. But I guess the question is, you know, is that still inherently connected to the mycelial network? What might come with this new body? We already have someone like Saru uh, who's undergoing his own changes. What's going to happen when you get another person going through weird new body puberty at the same time? It's, it's, there's going to be a lot of raging hormones going on. Well, this is why it's weird that Disco doesn't have a ship's counselor because I feel like they need to have a support group. I mean, uh, maybe new, new liaison, Ash Tyler. He'd be the perfect counselor, right? Uh, you, you give it to the guy who has the most baggage. I'm sure they could commiserate about a lot of things. Yeah, I got, I got to imagine, like, Klingon human body dysmorphia is a very powerful presence. He's going to have a lot of information to convey to the two of them. Yeah, it is interesting that, I mean, I guess it's both convenient and I guess it's understandable that they decide to send him as the liaison for Section 31 because he is a quote-unquote familiar face to most of the crew of the disco. But uh, he did not make a great first impression with Pike. I, I well, foresee many, many conflicts down the line between, since Tyler is now uh, a temporary permanent member of the disco crew. Well, do you think they brought back Culber just so that they could explain why people aren't raging at him every time they see him? Like, oh, you murdered that guy, but he's still alive, so I guess you didn't really murder him, so I guess we can forgive you? I mean, this is going to be super awkward now, right? I know yeah. that, I believe, you know, Stamets had a moment with Tyler as well, where things were... Pretty cold, but, you know, Stamets was also so concentrated on the war efforts that I don't think he was necessarily in proper grieving mode until the beginning of season two. But, yeah, it's going to be a weird day in the cafeteria, uh, you know, when they happen to, you know, meet at the replicator. And it's just going to be an awkward conversation of like, look, uh, you were not in the right identity and now you're in a new body. Let's just sort of start over from square one and see where that takes us. Yeah, I think they have to, but I think there's... A lot of interesting territory to explore. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing a bottle episode later this season where we put like Culber and Tyler together in a room and make them talk to each other, or like even put Stamets in there as well. And you know, for the hell of it, if Jet Reno's still around, put her in there to like run commentary on this. This is the episode I want to see. Yeah, actually, maybe Jet Reno could be the counselor, uh, just because she seems super down to earth and very glib and matter of fact so like i think if you're looking for the tough love i think she's actually your way to go i i yeah i could see her like just listening to somebody's sob story and then saying wow that's really messed up <laughs> or like that doesn't seem like a big deal you should get over it <laughs> anyway i gotta go fix that desk yeah here put some duct tape on it that'll fix yeah, you exactly right that's 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 the new book that she'll pen her hit self-help book put some duct tape on it 
Amazing. Amazing. Like, again, we are creating Star Trek spinoffs every time we podcast about this. Yeah, I mean, we're just creating, I think, more episodes of Short Treks. Uh, season two has been confirmed, so I'm I'm here for it. I, I think we need, a, we need at least one Jet Reno Short Trek, and if it becomes her... <laughs> Her stumbling down the path of amateur psychology. I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, she learned she learned how to be a brain surgeon, and it's not that different from fixing a ship. So I guess being a you know repairing psyches is just as easy as repairing brains and repairing ships. Yeah, just it's one's a part of the other. Uh, she can't do anything physically, but I guess if she's using you know her mental. Um, tools to be able to probe inside that brain. I, it, maybe it's sort of applicable. Man, Jet Reno can do anything. I'm convinced. Yeah, why didn't they take her into the mycelial network? She would have. She would have kicked some butt there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe she would have destroyed the entire mycelial network, like just stepping foot on it. They would have been like, oh, well, that's she's true. too awesome. I can't. Well, she's also very anti-spore, as shown in last episode. So maybe you did not want to bring, you know, the person who's uh, the biggest naysayer on the ship into this world who, when she finds absolutely no use for it as an energy source. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Um, we probably, she probably would be a little less careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not supposed to touch anything in the mycelial network. Apparently you get terrible burns. Yeah, exactly. Uh, though it's it's an interesting. I mean, this is a a nice little you know nod to I guess you know the communication uh, theme that happened in last episode as well of how you know to the Josep, Colber is the monster, but to Colber the Josep are the monster because they are they're unintentionally causing harm to each other when they touch each other. So you know obviously there's no way to sort of get on the same page unless. They're all in the same room, and even then, they're able to. They have to talk May down from using this stage three phaser to uh, blast Culber's head off right there. Yeah, love that highly technical explanation of the stage three phaser. By the way, I mean it's again, it's very, it's a matter of fact explanation. It's not stage one, and it's not stage two. So, I mean, I can only imagine what it would do. Um, I know this is, you know, they're pretty lax with the standards on all access. But if this was airing on like a, a you know, your HBOs and your or your Showtimes. I can only imagine how visceral it would get if you took, you know, a stage three uh, phaser blast to the head. Yeah, I think it would it would be like that scene in Scanners. Mm. Yes, exactly. Just complete explosion. No remnants. Nothing even the Josep can rebuild. Just nothing left. Yeah, it'd just be like a big gaping hole in the mycelial network. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, the real monster is the stage three phaser, obviously. Exactly. But, to, yeah, b- b- Josep don't kill people. Stage three phasers kill people. <laughs> there you go. The only thing that can stop a good guy with a stage three phaser is a bad guy with a stage three phaser. Uh, now you're speaking new, uh, new security officer Nan's language, uh, which I do fear for her because the security officer seems to be the defense against the dark arts position <laughs> aboard Discovery. So hopefully she does not go the way of Commander Landry, nor does she go a little cuckoo like Ash Tyler did. Yeah, it's not a position with a very good track record and usually like the security officer seems pretty stable if you look back to some of the other series so, <laughs> unless you're tasha yar yeah well there's tasha yar but you know tasha yar if we want to look to good examples of how you can get killed on a show and come back later i think we only need look tasha yar yeah that's true do we know if colber happened to uh mate with a romulan in any alternate universe instead of going through the mycelial network well, I'm sure that there exists some fan fiction about that, or maybe even a whole flo- full-fledged pornographic movie, as happened with actual Next Generation. So, 
Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, you know, again, it's it's a it's a rule thirty four uh, of of you know within any sort of Star Trek franchise. But I mean, it's all in the name of love. I'm happy the culprits are back together. Though, like you said, this Valentine's Day episode was focused on so many romances that that range from like complete puppy love to really awkward to like outright hating each other. Yeah, and this whole Ash Tyler thing, I have to feel like the whole reason Section Thirty One puts him on board there is just because they like making people feel awkward. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about section 31 here because I mean, this is the first time in disco proper that we're really getting to talk about this. I'll admit, I was a little surprised in its advent here because correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, this series is most so connected to the original series, but Section 31 is primarily something that's a part of DS9 and Enterprise, right? That is true. That's the two places where it's shown up before. And in both cases, it's been a very, very different beast. And this, I think, is really... I have to imagine that they're going to address it later, because this is like a bigger canonical misstep than the Bumpy Klingons. Uh, because... By the time you get to the DS9 universe, Section 31 is so secret that most people on the ship don't even know about it. You can't access records about it. And for about half the time that Dr. Bashir is talking to Section 31, he's not even sure they're a real thing. And now in this universe, it's like a guy rolls up and he's like wearing an actual Section 31 badge. And he's like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm the head of Section 31. And it's like, oh, yeah, Section 31. Cool. That's that must be really fun for you. And I'm thinking that's kind of not how your secret spy agency is supposed to work. Well, I wonder if, like you said, this is like, at this point, Section 31 is like disco in the mycelial network. They're sort of half in and half out. Uh, in that they're still doing secretive things, but it feels like they're, I forget what they're officially calling themselves. I think they're just calling themselves like Starfleet Security Intelligence. So I feel like at this point, they're still masquerading as like, okay, we're an official Starfleet agency, even if the things we do are a little unjust the end justifies the means. And I wonder if maybe we're going to see something, maybe even in Discovery, something is going to prompt Section 31 going underground, but also sort of covering itself up by saying, like, this organization is now dead. Maybe the reason why it's really questioned later on in that episode where Bashir gets interrogated by them is because it's sort of, they at this point, he feels like it's gone extinct. It was a thing of the past that, according to, you know, Starfleet lore, just completely, you know, went kaput because they took their unorthodox measures one step too far. Yeah, or even something might happen on Disco in the near future that causes them to totally eradicate themselves from the official record. Like, they mm. don't just go underground and call themselves extinct. They just say, Section 31 never happened. And it could be one of those things like the Spore Drive where something went so wrong with it that people in the future don't use it and can't even talk about it. Yeah, that's very true as well. Uh, I mean, like you said, it's so interesting that someone like Captain Pike, like 
Georgia was more than happy to pull out her badge and Pac's like, oh yeah, that's section 31. I know you guys. You guys are, well, you're not cool. You're very not cool, but fine, I'll tolerate you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess you sort of have to, either you'd have to wipe the memories of their existence or uh, th- it'll just die out with that generation. But like you said, it's super interesting that it's so well known, but I, this episode was really interesting because we got this a bit in New Eden and a bit last episode as well, but this is like really feisty Captain Pike. It's a new side of Anson Mount, and I'm super intrigued to see the side where, you know, he is very distrusting in, you know, Section 31, Proxy Ash Tyler, but really this guy Leland, who gets a, a much bigger role than he has before in his previous couple of appearances. Yeah, I'm really loving Captain Pike. I think it's a he's a well-written character. He's well-acted. And he brings this kind of fresh leadership that I felt like, I felt like even after Lorca turned out to be evil Lorca and was clearly like using the war to further his own ends, he still felt like, you know, you have to have that guy in charge and you have to have your captain guy and he's just kind of there a lot and he's leading the charge, but what do we know about him? And I feel like Pike brings this fresh style. He says, this is what being the captain could be. Yeah, I mean, he definitely brings, I mean, we talked about this in the, uh, you know, in the first couple episodes, he's sort of like the cool teacher. He's this guy that's like, yeah, this this is a guy that I can look up to, but these are the moments where, like, he's a bit stern, and we get to see sort of a different side of him because these are his, these are not, you know, his subordinates, these are his contemporaries. He went to school with Giorgio and Leland, and it's clear that, like, how he interacts with them is a bit, how he interacts with the other teachers in the teacher's lounge is a bit different from the way he interacts with his students. So it's cool to sort of see how he might change due to the different environments he acts in and how his thoughts on Section 31 will impart themselves onto poor Ash Tyler, who I think is just trying to do his job, but Pike will just not keep his eyes off of him. Ash Tyler is in a no-win situation. He's come back on a ship where he killed a guy, and he can't even, like, not have to face that guy. That guy's going to be there, so you have to face the guy you killed every day. You have to face your ex every day. You have to, fix, you have to face a captain who hates you every day. And you also are still contending with the fact that you're secretly a Klingon. It's, it's not an easy thing to be Ash Tyler. Tyler's... Such an interesting part of Section 31 as well. I know that you and Rob just sort of talked about at the end of Episode 3, like, oh, this makes sense. He was brought aboard here so that they can sort of, you know, uh, say goodbye to the Klingons and maybe he could go off and do his own thing. But, I mean, Tyler seems pretty indoctrinated when he talks to Michael. Uh, You know, when he says, you know, I think everyone at 31 thinks of it as a place where they make sense, not in spite of who they are, but because of it, they can be of use. They're good people. It's almost like he'd become like part of a gang. And he was sort of like a a lost soul. And he said, "Okay, I finally found this community that actually embraces me for who I am. So from that perspective, I could see how he falls in line with this this dogma, even if their actions are a little suspect. I think he drank the Kool-Aid. I think it's it's not a a great (laughs) look on him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Giorgio can be very persuasive. Uh, she was able to make that argument on that that big ass bridge, and uh, she was able to keep him aboard. I don't know how much time passed between then and now, but it seems like you know he got a he, he rose pretty well in the ranks. Unless this is just a super like bottom level job, and that's the reason why they put him on the ship. 
I think this is probably his first assignment, and I think he's still trying to make it work. I don't think he's questioning the methods. He's just trying to do his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, one thing I think is really funny about Ash Tyler is um, every time he lapses into Klingon or he refers to a Klingon term, he does that Alex Trebek thing of pronouncing it perfectly. <laughs> well, it's sort of like how, uh, I don't know, maybe it's him showing off like, you know, those people who study abroad at Spain and talk about how they had fun at Barcelona yes. and how they just like lasp, lapse into the accents to be like, oh, that's not how you pronounce it. This is how you pronounce it in its native tongue. Maybe he's just unintentionally showing off how, you know, well, he can speak Klingon when they can say like, hey, bro, we did that last episode and you weren't even here for it. Yeah, he, He's totally being that guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, this is it provides a lot of interesting circumstances as well, considering that, you know, Tyler, I guess, is is working as a liaison to Section 31. But Jess, if we're looking at we talked about last week how, you know, hey, little Easter egg. Here's a here's how, you know, technology that you saw in the, the original series onwards got involved, you know, got created. I believe from what Memory Alpha is telling me, this is the earliest recorded instance of someone using a communicator badge. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. And that's really exciting news, I guess. Well, that now it makes sense why uh, when he you know, initially dialed in on his new little uh, dinghy to talk to Leland to, to uncloak from looking like a big old asteroid. I was wondering why everyone was giving him WTF looks. But now I understand because to them, it looked like he was just yelling out into the air to nobody in particular, only to get that message received. Well, this is another case of technology now being pretty much already where we need to be if we're going to have technology like this 300 years into the future, because Mm -hmm. we pretty much already have this. Like we see people yelling at themselves all the time and they're just on their Bluetooth headsets. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Uh, You know, it's essentially like. Uh, it's like the Facebook portal that we keep seeing commercials about. Like, that's essentially the communicator badge is, is like a more regressive version of that, actually, where you couldn't see each other in the communicator badge. But now you're able to. It's like a combination of the communicator badge on the and the uh, much uh, beleaguered holograms that Pike hates so much. Yeah, it's really we already have all of this technology. And it's funny that all of the small internal stuff, we've even kind of progressed beyond some of it in a way. So really need to concentrate all our efforts on the astrophysics and the things that are really hard, like the warp speed and the having gravity on your ship and those kinds of things. How did you feel about, because we obviously had badass Giorgio, you know, saving Laurel and Tyler from uh, that a-hole Coleshaw in the Klingon episode, but this is the first time in this season that we're seeing her interact with her lovely Michael Burnham, even though she's not from the proper universe. Uh, Did you feel like good use of Mira Giorgio this episode? Yeah, I think we got good use of Mira Giorgio. Um, It's really impressive how she has managed to rise in the ranks of Section 31. So she has like people working under her and everything. Um, And it's been like maybe six months tops since all of this has gone down. Um, She is pretty amazing at how she's able to convince people that she's regular Giorgio when we all know that she is not mere Giorgio and she's never once slipped up. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, when back in the end of season one, when she was masquerading as proper Philip or Giorgio and Michael tried to blow up her spot 
by like asking all of these uh questions of like what when we did this what happened where were you born etc but that's the downside of how uh you know despite Mira Giorgio tailing off in a different direction she still is Philippe Giorgio basically so she has all those details down she just sort of has a change in wardrobe and a little bit more of a change in temperament and uh she makes weird snake sounds sometimes and she's also real badass at eating apples yeah, that apple thing, I I know that I'm supposed to be annoyed when this trope comes up of somebody like viciously eating a piece of fruit at somebody, but I kind of find it delightful. I just got mad when she dropped it on the floor. It's like, stop wasting food. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, uh, someone's going to have to either replicate a new apple or someone's going to have to clean that up. Uh, this is not this is not your your place, Giorgio. You can't just leave your stuff everywhere, though. Maybe that was sort of like, a, a you know, hey, Michael Burnham, step to me. I'm dropping stuff all over your ship and you can't do a thing about it. Well, is this like do they just beam it into space? Somebody drops something on the floor. I mean, if you did, I, there would be a larger problem with the garbage in space, right? It would be like the Futurama episode. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Or maybe they just like beam it back into the replicator, like they recycle it somehow. And like her half eaten apple that fell on the floor becomes someone's steak dinner tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know if number one wants to ask for any more burgers because I don't know what's going to be in that. Yeah, I I, I wonder how many times everybody on the ship has eaten the same replicated piece of food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is why I can understand why some people decide to go for the ancient art of cooking. Uh, I mean, Giorgio has a really interesting. I'm going to say arc, but interesting series of moments this episode, because I mean, I feel like this was alluded to a bit uh, in the end of season one when Michael's able to convince her to not blow up the Klingon homeworld, because I do think despite the fact that she's from a different universe, just like Michael brought over Taryn Giorgio because she felt a connection to her universe, Giorgio, I feel like, uh, you know, Empress Giorgio doesn't <clears throat> kind of helps out Michael Burnham sometimes because she has a connection to her Terran counterpart. And that's what sort of happens here where, you know, she's able to give Discovery those last like few seconds that they need when Leland's about to pull out and, and completely abandon them in the mycelial network. George O is the one that really pulls rank and decides, no, you know what? I'm going to help him here. And you have to wonder if it's because she has this connection so much so that she actually, you know, uh, hollows herself over to Michael to basically brag about it. Yeah, and I think also she probably has less of a problem subverting authority because she was authority for so long. I think being an emperor probably makes you not really care if somebody else is telling you what you're what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and it's also like, okay, if I do something bad, what are you going to do to me? Like she I know she said she has blackmail on Leland, but at the same time, I feel like Section 31's also like an organization that it's not secret enough where they're doing such, you know, uh covert nasty things that they could just like get rid of somebody and plus she's a she's a key member she's good for recruitment she brought ash tyler aboard so like i think she sort of has a golden parachute here uh and she knows it yeah i i guess it's it's really good to be mira giorgio yeah that's true i think she's in a she's in a pretty powerful position it seems like she's trying to bring michael over to her side uh, i don't know if it's going to happen michael seems pretty committed to the fact that it's not going to happen but I don't know, especially with the spinoff coming along, which was another interesting thing as well. I didn't know how much of Section 31 we were going to see this season because of this announced spinoff. I think you and Rob talked about it, that that would be like that might be the only appearance of it. But seems like we're building out the mythos a bit, which I was uh, I was a little surprised to see. 
Well, you can't build it out too much because then you just wind up like everybody goes over to the other show. It's like if you have two things that are too similar, you wind up with the same conundrum that you did when you had Voyager and DS9 on the air. It's like the really diehards will watch anything that's thrown at them. But if they're too stylistically similar, then you usually end up picking one and that's your one. Mm, it's, It's the family guy in the Cleveland show thing all over again. Yes, it's exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it also depends on, like, when they time things out. But I'll be intrigued to see, you know, if Ice Tyler goes back, uh, you know, or if they pick up some other people, exactly what this Section 31 spinoff will detail, even more so than before. Because now that we actually know more about it and how it's structured a bit, uh, you know, this this might be the most comprehensive investigation of it ever, considering that it sort of has... Uh, dipped in and come out of the franchise in various places. Yeah, or maybe the new series will just be all about the story of why they erased every trace of Section 31 from the public record. Mm. It's a good, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, I know that uh, in the talks of like these Game of Thrones prequel stuff coming out, there, there's been talk about that, right? Of showing like previous events and why things ended up the way they did by the time the actual series proper came along. I could see something similar going on, especially with disco taking place, you know, 10 years before the events of the original series. I could see them doing that of telling these like prologue stories that are all encapsulating so that, you know, once we come around to it, it's never spoken about again because uh, Giorgio did something in the spinoff that caused it to terminate. What if the whole series is just like Giorgio self-destructing section 31? That would just be sad. (laughs) Yeah, it would be pretty sad. Like, she's just, like, she plays by her own rules, and those rules have consequences. Yeah, though, hopefully that would mean more Leland, because, again, this, uh... I don't know why I didn't expect him to be the leader of Section 31. I guess when he had approached Giorgio during that bonus scene in Season 1 to recruit her, I thought maybe he was just, like like I said, a, a, just a basic recruiter. I didn't realize that he apparently seems to be the guy behind Section 31 to the point where uh, we get an, uh, an Admiral Cromwell or Cromwell appearance in this season to sort of uh, say like, hey, boys, stop, you know, stop having a pissing contest, essentially. Yeah, honestly, if you're in charge of Section 31, it seems like you have better things to do than like going around personally recruiting every new person. I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's like a startup. You know, like he was trying to to bring in who maybe that's why another reason why Giorgio uh, is essentially untouchable is because it seems like she's his number one. I'm not really seeing anybody else in that hierarchy. And maybe the spinoff can sort of deter that logic. But there's not really anybody else who's uh, who's having these conversations with him. So it seems like maybe she brought he brought her in. She's like, great, but I'm going to make up my own title. Uh, and then they just started to recruit random people. And now they're sort of like a fledgling organization that apparently has awesome technology. And really great PR, because if Section 31 is only like three people at this point, how come everybody knows who they are? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, since maybe Cornwell is the one who's spreading the good word, though, I don't know. Maybe they should. I don't know how Cornwell still has her job after the events of season (laughs) one, but she's still there, it seems, alive and kicking. Yeah, I mean, it was good to see her again. Uh, But yeah, she has that kind of icky history with the guy that turned out to be his mirror universe counterpart and almost got everybody killed. And yet she's still an admiral. That and she also was the one who helped was, was behind the plan and helped push uh, Empress Giorgio to almost, you know, commit genocide on an entire planet. And she seems OK now. 
maybe it's just because you know we're only five episodes in where i remember cornwell was a pretty big part of season one i want to say she was in at least like half the episodes there was that whole storyline where she got kidnapped by the klingons and she and laurel sort of uh work together buddy cop style to uh to escape the ship or at least to get to a better place before they get rescued so uh i was a little surprised that she took a step back here but i guess it makes sense in that she represents sort of starfleet at large we're not going through the revolving door of admirals like we do with other with other uh, series here. It seems like she is the lone representative. She's the David Wallace of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. I will definitely. I like that one. Um, I hope that she doesn't end up like inventing a toy vacuum and quitting the show. I mean, she might. I, who knows? She might end up like retiring someplace. I mean, I would rather that than her, you know, getting killed. Uh, I mean, who knows at this point? Maybe that's the thing that Section 31 has to go underground about. Maybe they end up killing, a, you know, an admiral and they have to. That sort of is the end of it all. I'm not entirely sure, but I, it, it was an interesting. I mean, in an episode full of interesting cameos. That was that was definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sec- I think season one was so bonkers that you almost you can almost forget entire important characters like that. Yeah, it's true. Again, since. We don't really deal a lot with Starfleet like we did back in the first season. It's something you sort of forget about, especially since we're pursuing uh, the signals and the Red Angel, which even though we didn't find Spock, Jess, we got just a, just a teeny smidge of a hint about these yeah. signals. I guess. I, I'm i so sick of this Red Angel business. If they're just going to give us like little dribs and drabs every episode and then two minutes of Spock at the end of the series. I I'm not here for that. I need I need all of it now. Tell me who the Red Angel is. Tell me who Spock is. This is what I loved about season one. We would introduce these bonkers mysteries and then we just explain them and move on and have a new thing. And I feel like having this one thing to focus on, it just feels like a giant tease. Yeah, I mean, the, and the little tease that we got here is that, you know, they check the remnants around these signals that keep disappearing and they are a field of tachyon particles. And uh-huh. I yeah. science the science and other science. And then they say tachyon is like, oh, oh, good. We're going to time travel. Yeah. Fun or stuff. I mean, as Leland says, it could just be cloaking devices or transporters, but it feels like it wouldn't have brought, been brought up if it wasn't time travel. Right. Nobody ever says tachyons if they're not going to give you time travel. Yeah, I, I and especially since we've also dealt with cloaking devices, not only with Section 31, but with the, the Klingon stuff as well. Maybe that will also, you know, maybe that is going to have them consorting with the Klingons again, considering that they're known for their cloaking technology. But yeah, I mean, and this could also be how I mean, I don't know what the Red Angel is. If it is some sort of person, maybe that's the reason why it has freaky deaky powers is because if it's coming from way far in the future, Maybe, maybe that's why I'm not entirely sure, but that's the little taste we got of the Red Angel this week, which I would say is at least more satisfying than the taste we got of Spock, which was none. I don't know. I I feel like these little tastes, I'm not even interested. I'm not even going to taste them. I'm going to wait until I get the whole thing to shove down my throat. All right. No, no amuse-bouche for you. You're waiting for the whole course to come your way. Uh, You don't want to fill up on bread before we actually get to the meal. Bring me the steak, and it better not be like steak made out of someone's apple that fell on the floor. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to have a complaint to the chef that is a machine. Yes, the chef that is a machine. Well, again, you're right. This is why people in the 21st century are still cooking for hobbies. 
Yeah, exactly. Like you could, uh, I mean, I guess I would rather have someone, you know, burn the eggs in front of me than eat these pretty good eggs, but also try to think about what might be, what these might be made of. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So is there anything else we need to touch on before we send this stuff out into orbit? We touched upon uh, a lot of good stuff. I mean, this was really a game changer of an episode, in my opinion, considering that Obviously, we have the resurrection of a character. Uh, you know, we have uh, we have the reveal of Section Thirty One's involvement, at least in this universe. Ash Tyler is back on board, and I do find it interesting that for an episode that I think both of us agreed, you know, had uh, a little less in terms of plot events that the previous episode did, which you know is not saying a lot, considering that there was a lot going on in the last episode. It does feel like this actually moved the chains a lot more than the previous episode did. So it's it's less about, you know, the number of plot lines you cram in an episode. It's more about the changes that happen. And this really felt like, you know, uh, more than a third into this season, we're really starting to transform this into something else. Though, like Colbert, it's going to be the same spirit, just maybe in a new body. Yeah, I and I can't wait for the whole episode where Stamets realizes that Colbert now smells like mushrooms all the time. <laughs> Listen, I think that's a turn on for Stamets personally. Maybe not for Jet Reno, but I feel like he's into it, especially since he has, you know, he has the tardigrade stuff in him. So it's a weird it's a weird match made in heaven. I guess so. Maybe they're just kind of perfect for each other. And yeah. I, we got to celebrate true love wherever we find it. Absolutely. I'm happy to see these two back. I want to see these two interact more together, even if things are weird for a myriad of reasons. Uh, Maybe I'm just being selfish, but I want to see these two back on my screen together. Uh, I felt for Stamets with his grieving. I did not want to see the man sad. So if he's at least a modicum happier that his partner is now back in his life, then it's worth it, in my opinion. Could we get maybe a cold open next week that's just a montage of Culver and Stamets back together, like having breakfast together and like going on walks along the promenade. And maybe we could put that all to the tune of the turtles. <laughs> yep. I, I was thinking that that song was running through my head. Uh, I mean, this, this series is fond of montages. We started and ended with one. So why not throw a bunch of them in there? You have a, a big old cast to explore. So you might as well uh, you make economy of time there. I mean, it would beat the hell out of the way this episode opened. I, I thought that monologue was some of the worst film school writing I've ever heard about words define us. That was like that was like someone cribbing from the end of the Breakfast Club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like uh, <laughs> a loner, a widower. I mean, it's it's the saddest version of the Breakfast Club that I've ever heard of uh, the Disaster Club. And I mean, Michael has this speech at the end that's a bit more cheerful, but it's also like a, just a big old thesis statement about her. Like, I don't believe in that there's a higher power guiding us, but if there is, I hope it hope it's sending us on the right path. Amen. Yes, uh, I hope the Pacific Ocean is as blue as it's been in my dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We throw we still throw some more words in there though, but yeah, there was a little. On the nose, these bookends thing, like I said, complete with a very similar walk to the bridge. But we we move forward, chintziness and all, into episode six. Yeah, we don't need to conclude every episode with Michael Burnham's Doogie Howser diary entry. Yeah, I'm just saying that's basically what it's become. Uh, which you know, it's a it's a little more poetic than I think some of the 
the uh, logs of the past with these Starfleet captains. And I think maybe that's why is because she's a little more introspective than the other ones being like, well, and then this happened and now we're OK. Uh, she's a little less matter of fact and a little more. Well, what does this mean? How could, what what do you think this means for the larger sense of things? Yeah, I guess. But if we're being honest, I think that we really just don't need to start every episode with a log. We didn't do that as recently as the last couple Star Trek series. It's okay to do it sometimes. We don't need it every time, and we don't need it if we're just going to be writing emo poetry. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Maybe now that she has Tilly back, she'll be happier to not write the emo poetry. But we'll we'll do a running log here, a running log of the logs, and see uh, what Michael's Bur- what Michael Burnham's live journal esque mood is when she does these. Ah, uh, the log log. I I will be holding you to that, Mike. All right, uh, log squared is happening. Let's make it a thing, people. All right, excellent. And if someone out there wants to like do a log of the logs of the logs. Um, I'm sure someone's going to volunteer to do that as well, because Mm -hmm. those are the kind of listeners we have. Lovely listeners, them all. Indeed. So, I guess that's another one for the logbooks, Mike. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and we got so much going on on Post Show Recaps, and I think I'm doing most of it right now. So, (laughs) um, our Walking Dead coverage for the season half kicked off last week as Rob Sestradino and I broke down everything that happened in the mid-season premiere, and we're going to be back at you again. Uh, Mike and I are recording this on Saturday night, and Rob and I record on Sunday nights, so no weekends for me forever, but we're having a great time. We'll hope you guys will check that all out. Uh, elsewhere on Post Show Recaps, we got the rewatch of Game of Thrones going on. And then over on the main, Rob has a podcast channel. There's all kinds of stuff. Survivor kicks off next week. Uh, Celebrity Big Brother is come to a close, and there's many, many other fine shows to be checking out. And Mike, tell everybody what you are doing on and off of Rob Has a Podcast. So uh, in terms of the on stuff, Jess mentioned some of the great covers that's going on in terms of reality television. Survivor's back, and so is the RHAP B&B trying to break down this cast and these twists for what is sure to be a bonkers season of television. Uh, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars 4 just finished, but like the Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, uh, also season 11 is about to start right back up, so we are continuing on that trail, talking about Top Chef as well. And as I mentioned before, uh, so I have been doing... Uh, I've been able to cover Star Trek Discovery for The Hollywood Reporter, and this week I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with both Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz about the events of this episode. Uh, They give some really interesting behind-the-scenes information as to when they found out that Culber was going to die, when they found out that he would be back, which was pretty much after he died. Uh, They pretty much gave him that reassurance early on. Their thoughts on the episode proper, what it means moving forward, and just the overall thoughts on what they represent as the first major same-sex relationship in Star Trek. I thought Wilson Cruz in particular had some really awesome words about what that represents, about essentially how it means that the LGBT community has not, you know, it's it's not only representing the fact that they have always been there, but it's representing the fact that they will always be there. And that Stamets and Culber is really a microcosm of that. So feel free to take a look at that. I'll be sure to provide some more stuff in the coming weeks as this season keeps on chugging along. And I'm having so much fun getting to both talk about it with you and write about it for them. 
It's very fun. I really loved the interview that you did this week, and I can't wait to see what you've got coming up next. It's 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 going to be a fun one. Uh, this season is just bobbing and weaving all over the place, and uh, especially again with all the change in statuses and forms that went on in this episode, I can only imagine where we go from here. Yeah. Uh, well, we will be back at you guys next week with all of the fun stuff uh, that happens as we bob and weave our way into episode six. And in the meantime, if you have any thoughts on what's coming up next, uh, when we're ever going to see Spock and or find out the origins of the Red Angel, you can tweet at me. I am at Haymaker Hattie. And I am at a Mike Bloom type. And we hope that we will hear from you, um, regardless of how you feel about your theories or how you felt about the episode. We really loved talking about all of that with you. So we'll see you next week for episode six. Take care, everybody. Bye. Special thanks to our friends over at True Car for sponsoring this episode of Post Show Recaps. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date, that luxury package you got after that big promotion, or the mileage you save by riding your bike all summer long. Now, while you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof. They will will bump up your car's value high mileage you already knew it was going to cost you but now you can find out how much it's going to ding your wallet so you can plan ahead and once you're finished you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes which you could take to a local certified dealer so you could cash out or trade in so when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car check out true car today true cash offer not available in all areas